This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. In earlier periods of Christian history, the Psalms were the songbook of the church, and they were familiar enough to most Christians to serve as a way of expressing the Christian struggle with sin, dying to sin and being renewed in the image of Christ. Today, the Psalter has become less familiar, but that unfamiliarity does not mean that the Psalms themselves have changed. They remain, as Calvin said, an anatomy of all parts of the soul, for there is not one emotion of which any one can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror, or rather, the Holy Spirit has drawn to the life of all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Here to serve as our tour guide back to the Psalms as a model for the Christian struggle with and for sanctity is Dr. Brian Estelle. He's professor of Old Testament at Westminster Seminary, California. He's been a pastor in Maryland and Oregon and is the author of Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy, The Gospel According to Jonah. This and other faculty titles is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is part one of our discussion with Dr. Estelle. Hi, Brian, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks. Good to be here with you. We are talking about sanctification, and one of the things that I wanted to do in this episode is to look at the way the Psalms help us think about sanctification. And one of the things with which I have been impressed for a long time about the Psalms is the realistic way that the Psalter and the Psalmists talk about the Christian life, both in a positive way and in a negative way. And what I mean by that are the ways in which the Psalms reflect on the grace of God in our lives, but also the way in which the Psalms reflect on the day-to-day struggle of the believer with sin. And there are obviously a lot of issues that we can get into as we look at that. So let's start where the Psalms begin in Psalm 1. And the listener is surely familiar with this psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's the ESV translation of Psalm 1. The psalmist juxtaposes the righteous and the wicked. So help us think through this, Brian. How should we read this psalm? One is blessed and one is not. What's the connection between righteousness and sanctification in the Psalter? And how does Psalm 1 orient us in this? That's a great question and a great 
place to lead in and a door to go through to get into the Psalter as a whole, Scott, because probably Psalm 1 was placed there for a reason to introduce the whole Psalter and to frame the Psalter, if you will. And as you were reading that Psalm, it's very easy to hear what we call in biblical studies and even in church history, the doctrine of the two ways, because you have the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And this is actually picked up throughout scripture and even in extra biblical literature in the patristic period. But it is important to think about righteousness there and how one views the righteous person and the wicked person, who's being talked about, what are God's expectations for us, that kind of thing. So perhaps the way to enter into this discussion is to go to the New Testament and think about how Paul views righteousness, because if both the psalmist and Paul were inspired by the same Spirit to write what they did, which I don't think is a condition contrary to fact. (laughs) By that you mean to say you understand the Holy Spirit to have inspired both Old and New Testament. So there's a fundamental unity, right? Exactly. They are uh, teaching the same truth. Sure, there's development through time, but nevertheless, we can look at what Paul says about righteousness and understand the psalm not in contradiction with that. I've been very helped in the whole debate and discussion about righteousness that's been going on, especially in recent decades decades, and especially in our engagement with a new perspective on Paul and that kind of thing, by Westerholm, who is a Pauline scholar, a Canadian. And he talks about two fundamental kinds of righteousness, and I like what he does in organizing this. He talks about an ordinary righteousness, by which he means an intrinsic kind of righteousness, where someone is an individual, human being, is truly righteous, and then God would declare them righteous or pronounce them righteous based upon an ordinary kind of righteousness. In Greek, there's a whole group of words associated with righteousness that we call the dikaio group. Then he clarifies that there's another kind of righteousness, which is called an extraordinary kind of righteousness, that's what he calls it, which is the means by which God declares one righteous is the giving of righteousness to another. So it comes by means of the death and imputation of Christ's active obedience to a person And therefore, looking at it from God's point of view, a person can be declared righteous. Because you see, the fundamental issue here is God cannot declare someone to be righteous who is not righteous. The Proverbs and other passages which come to be invoked in this kind of discussion, it's a wicked thing to pronounce someone just who is truly not just and righteous. So I think that that's very helpful when we begin to look at the Psalms and we begin to think about who's the righteous man that's being talked about here. A fundamental starting point is to say no one is righteous before God. And our Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 16 declares quite clearly that we cannot by our own best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God because of the great disproportion that's between us and God himself. Or on the continental side, the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 62 is a great place to go because it asks the questions, why can't the good we do make us right with God or at least help make us right with him? The answer because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. And even the best that we do in this life is imperfect and stained with sin. So that's the fundamental starting point is that in order to please God, especially in a sense 
that would receive his approval, approbation, that would gain us entitlement to heaven, earn heaven, a kind of righteous deed that will qualify before God to merit eternal life, must be perfect, must be personal, must be owned by us, must be perpetual. That's the kind of language in which our confessions speak, and that's really derived all from biblical material. And we know this side of the fall, because of Adam's imputed sin to us because of our own derelictions, because of our own propensity to sin as well, that no one can perform a work that is considered righteous before God such that they would earn eternal life. So, when we turn to Psalm 1, we need to realize that there are mechanics in the world such that if one strives to obey God and please Him and do His will because they've been given a new heart by God, they've been regenerated by His Spirit, and therefore our desires become God's desires, that when God gives us the grace to obey Him, albeit imperfectly, albeit stained by sin, nevertheless, God does bless that in the sense that, well, if you spend time communicating with your wife and building a relationship, then that's going to bear fruit. If you don't sin in certain ways that God's Word clearly proscribes and says don't do this, then you're maybe not going to incur the consequences of those sins. So that fundamentally is there in the world. But in an ultimate sense, when we talk about someone who is righteous and blessed by God and does not sit in the seat of the scoffers and indeed is approved by God, we're not talking about a righteousness that we get in and of ourselves. This is a righteousness that comes from God, is given to us by God, and ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the truly righteous person. He's the only one that was without sin this side of the fall and therefore can receive the Father's approval. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Is it possible to think about the blessed man in Psalm 1 as a believer in a state of grace, in a state of having been accepted by God for Christ's sake? And then within that framework, then we begin to look at this language, blessed is. Is it fair to distinguish between blessed is and blessed because? Because if you look at the psalm as it goes on, it is descriptive, right? This is the nature, this is the pattern of the blessed man. He doesn't do these things. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, but he delights in the law. It's not the case that the psalmist is saying, at least not obviously, that if you do these things or because you've done these things, you are blessed. But the blessed man does this. And then it goes on to continue to characterize him. He's like a tree planted by streams. And then it contrasts the wicked. Can we think of the psalm this way? Absolutely. So if I hear your question correctly, the way to think about this and Actually, if we were to go on and quote from the section that I did in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, which is so good on its description about good works, it's only in the covenant of grace that good works are pleasing to God, the works of believers. Well, now take one step back and say, well, how did they get into the covenant of grace, truly participate in the covenant of grace, and why are their works pleasing to God? Well, not intrinsically in and of themselves, but because God has put within them a spirit that has given them a new heart and a renewed will. Now their will becomes God's will to obey him and please him. And the confession's quite clear that although those works are imperfect, are tainted by sin, nevertheless, because God deigns that it is so, he receives those 
works, those demonstrative works on the part of a believer that are flowing forth in their regenerate heart and their justification, James would say, demonstrable, demonstrated works. You know, we bear fruit as Christians because of the work of God in our hearts and because of the grace that he gives us and the Holy Spirit wrought in us. So yeah, it's not a condition that one has to, you know, some kind of uh, quid pro quo relationship where we do this and then that binds God to respond in a certain way. No, Protestants have always emphasized the great legal foundation of justification, and it's by Christ's work alone that we stand before God, that we receive anything good from his hand is because of Christ's merits, not our own. But nevertheless, God does expect us to live out our salvation with fear and trembling and with obedience out of grateful hearts. One of the striking things that we find in the Psalter is a remarkable degree of honesty, even sort of brutal honesty. In fact, it's the kind of honesty that we really don't see much anymore. We live in a world where people manufacture a perception of themselves in social media, Facebook, Twitter, what have you, where young people report that when they look at themselves or compare their lives with the lives of others as they see those lives represented on social media, that they get depressed because they're not living up to the standards set by other people as they represent present themselves in the media. So we don't live in a time and in a culture where people are brutally honest about their failings. And yet, as we look at the Psalter, and here I'm thinking about Psalm 32, we only have, you know, 30 minutes here (laughs) to cover 150 Psalms. So I'm looking at Psalm 32, and it begins, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts or imputes, just what you were saying a moment ago, no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So when we come back after this break, I want you to describe for us or give an account to us of how it is the psalmist, this is a a psalm or a maskil of David, how David is able to be so honest in this psalm and say in Psalm 51 about the nature of his sin and his struggle with sin. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness. Watch Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, via live streaming video on your computer or mobile device. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014, wscal.edu slash conference 2014. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God people. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California. 
wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Scott, these are great choices with regards to your point about honesty in the Psalter. Just finished a three or four year project translating through the whole Psalter service of our denominations because we're creating a new Psalter hymnal. And I was struck fresh and anew about the honesty that comes out in the Psalter. And these are two great Psalms to that end. Psalm 32 was Augustine's favorite Psalm. He said, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. And he is said to have had this inscribed next to his deathbed where he derived consolation in his final hours. There was a famous Scottish minister who I think summed up and set the tone correctly for the psalm. So at the end of his outline and devotion on the psalm, he says, While I am truly conscious of my sinfulness and deeply affected therewith, this is John Brown, let the faith and experience of Jesus' full pardon of my sins and the communications of his grace melt my heart and animate me to every commanded duty. Now, that really gets at the gist of the psalm. This is a Thanksgiving psalm by classification, what we call genre classification. The particular element in Thanksgiving psalms is you have a song of lament, past lament, buried within the psalm, and then the psalmist has been delivered from whatever was causing him to lament, so his distress is often recorded in the psalm, and then he gives thanksgiving for God's deliverance and vindication of him through that. And it's interesting when you look at the psalm how it opens, because you have a threefold refrain, blessed, 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 and then at the end, I think it's verse two or three, correct me if I'm wrong, and it says, blessed is the one in whom there is no guile or deceit. And that that provides a very nice lead-in to his lament before we get to the Thanksgiving section. But notice how it opens, in whom there is no guile. Then you get to verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's a great truth that's taught because back to our confession, the Westminster Confession, it says, men ought not to occupy themselves, this is in chapter 15, section 5, with a general kind of repentance, but they ought to repent of their particular sins particularly. So God directs us to repent of whatever the burden of our particular sins are as men and women. And then in verse 5, you see he's delighted with honesty. And this brings home the truth of what's taught in a proverb. Proverbs 28:13 basically teaches this very similar truth whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy if god is really all knowing well how silly of us to think that we can hide our sins <laughs> so god praises the one in whom there is no guile, in whom there is no deceit. And then when you look at verses 6 and 7, you see how we ought to respond if we're going to fall in the tracks of the psalmist, because when unrepented sin comes to mind, the psalmist unburdens himself and admits that that's the case, and then he shifts right in to declare that God is our shelter. So when we're honest with him about our sin 
and honest about our condition. And we don't try and in some way throw dust up in God's eyes because he's all-seeing and all-knowing anyway. We can claim that he's our refuge. We can find shelter under his wings. And then, interestingly, in verse 8, the psalmist switches to actually instruct his fellows and his others in these truths. It takes on almost kind of a wisdom tone. Look, if you want to be smart, if you want to be wise about how to have a posture before God, then be honest about your sin. Find refuge in him, find succor in him, consolation in him, and then he concludes with prayer. Six and seven, too, are an essential transition, right? And it's interesting. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Our instinct, and you and I are both pastors, and you and I have seen this in dealing with folks who are in the midst of rushing great waters, right? And the instinct is to cover up, it's to hide, it's to protect. And the psalmist says, no, you said counterintuitively earlier. That's a good word here. Ironically, perhaps, paradoxically, the way to salvation in this sense of deliverance is not to hide, not to cover up, but it's actually to go to God and to confess because that is where safety is. That's exactly right, Scott. And whatever the metaphor, if we were to, if we had more time, we could drill deeper and unpack that. So is it the rushing waters in a wadi ravine because of rain and we find shelter up on the cliff and we don't get caught up in those torrential waters? Whatever the original metaphor for the Christian, our counterintuitive when we sin and rightly feel ashamed of our sin is to run from God because he is all-knowing. That's a daunting thought. But actually, we ought to be fleeing and running directly to the cross and unburdening ourselves to Christ. And so for the Christian to apply the psalm means to do exactly that. One can understand, especially if he knows Augustine's biography, <laughs> one who, whose life was tainted with habitual sin, why this became such a uh, dear psalm to him. Do we have time I read a short quote from a commentator? We have time. Okay. <laughs> This is by Peter Craigie, who sums up this psalm and concludes with the following. This might provide a nice conclusion to Psalm 32 because he not only restates the substance, but he helps us understand and analyze how we should think about the psalm as a whole. This is what he says. The psalm progresses smoothly from the statement of principle, verses 1 and 2, to the illustration of principle, verses 3 to 5. And from the invitation to pray to the admonition not to be stubborn, so verse 6 and then verse 9 and 10. And it concludes on a mighty note of praise. It is a fundamental psalm illustrating powerfully the prerequisite of spiritual health, namely a self-conscious awareness of one's sinful life and of the necessity of acting upon that awareness and confession before God. And further, the psalm establishes, as St. Paul was later to write, that justification and forgiveness for mankind are not achieved on the basis of law or of circumcision, but on the basis of divine grace, which flowed in response to the faith of the one who confessed and sought forgiveness. Romans 4, 6-9, he cites. The psalm is thus central to the gospel, and it points out the path of true happiness to sinners aware of their need for forgiveness. So that's a nice summary to get at the essence of this penitential psalm, I think. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. When we look at a psalm like 42 
or 63, we see the psalmist expressing an intense desire for God. And I won't read all of Psalm 42 in the interests of time, but just to remind the listener, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down? O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now there's more that we could read, but help us to put this psalm in context. And also, how does this psalm help us to think about the nature of the Christian life, our need for God, and those times when we do get discouraged about maybe things outside of us, but also maybe things inside of us? Yeah, Psalm 42 is great in that regard. One of my favorite lead-ins, because you see the parallelism there at the beginning is metaphoric, and our soul is compared to a hind or a deer panting after water. And so it demonstrates for us what our desires should be, although often they're not, but we can aspire by God's grace to that. It struck me as you were reading the psalm, struck me afresh, that at a point in the psalm, I forget what verse, but he talks about leading others to the sanctuary or to the presence of God, is that right? Yes, in verse 4. And I'm struck how often that's a turning point in the Psalter. So you have disorientation. Walter Brueggemann called a lot of the Psalms that are laments a kind of psychological state of disorientation. Then God brings us into a state of orientation. That's a great image, because isn't that true in our lives, that when either things go south or we go south, that we do experience a kind of disorderedness, existentially, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and that does really capture a lot of the language in the Psalter. Oh, absolutely. And it's a a well-worn phrase and remembrance that Calvin talked about, the Psalter containing all the spectrum of human emotion. And if we're honest with ourselves, and we ought to be honest with ourselves like the psalmist is, we need to express all those emotions to God. So not only our thoughts, our speech, he knows our emotions beforehand before we even experience them. And so we can unburden ourselves to God in this way. But what strikes me and what I was going to say with regards to this psalm and having worked through the Psalter in detail recently, what strikes me is there's often a stage of disorientation until one comes into the sanctuary or until one comes into the presence of God or for them was often going to the temple and hearing the pronouncement of a priest announce the word of the Lord. And then what happens is you often have a turning point in the psalm. Whereas one was disoriented before, he now becomes oriented. Whereas one was confused before about what was actually happening as the psalmist observed God's providence playing out in the world, and that was bewildering to him. Then when he comes into God's presence, or he hears the priest pronounce a word from God, then suddenly he becomes 
oriented like we see in Psalm 42. And then he even wants to lead others to follow in the same train. Psalm 73 is a classic example of this. It's an amazing wisdom psalm where you see he is envious of the wicked. He is bewildered. He doesn't understand why those who do not follow God seem to be prospering when those who are faithful to God are not prospering. It causes him great, great, great bewilderment, such that he says he almost jettisons his faith. And even though he he hesitates to announce these things, he doesn't even want to cause a younger generation to stumble. But it's almost like the Holy Spirit trumps his desire. And now we have inscripturated his tremendous bewilderment and orientation. And then you come to verse 17, and that's the turning point. And he says, ah, but then I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end, namely the end of the wicked. And then if the listener were to survey the rest of the psalm, you will see a complete reorientation. Now, I think this is absolutely an essential teaching point that's timely for the church today, because what these psalmists are doing is they're making use of the means of grace as it was available to them. For us as Christians, we know that the means of grace is primarily offered up in the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. So we do great injury to ourselves. We perhaps prolong our confusion in the world. We perhaps prolong our own bewilderment about ourselves and our own frustration and our pilgrimage if we avoid the means of grace that God has given us in this day and age, which is namely to be in church, to attend to his word, to the preaching of the gospel and the distribution of the sacraments, and also in our own private devotions to... And the communion of the saints. Absolutely. Again, counterintuitively, paradoxically, when we're in the midst of a struggle, the first reaction sometimes is to close off and to cut people off and to isolate ourselves. Well, what you see in the Psalter is the sinner and the psalmist, as you say, only finds order when he goes to the public worship and hears the declaration, the objective word of God coming to him that brings order and peace and renewal in the midst of struggle. Absolutely. What father or mother, what child, but especially I appeal to parents, <laughs> has not felt like, oh my goodness, I, I'm not sure I can drag myself into church today. You know, sometimes because of our own sin, some because of family dynamics sometimes. But you're right. We feel like isolating ourselves as pastors. We're constantly dealing with wandering sheep who retract and pull away from the communion of saints, when in fact that's exactly what they need. Now, unfortunately, sometimes in the communion of saints, people say things that are untoward and unhelpful. But more often than not, somebody speaks a good word to us, a word of encouragement. And especially the pastor is, he rightly divides the word of truth from the pulpit. And we're strengthened by that. I can't tell you how many times, I'm sure you've experienced too, where your very countenance has changed, the countenance of your family has changed. Why? Because you've done your duty. You go and you sit and you listen to the means of grace. You partake of communion if you're a communion member in good standing. And you fellowship with the believers and benefit from the communion with the saints. And then you walk away and the whole countenance has changed. 
This ends part one of our discussion with Dr. Brian Estelle on the struggle for sanctification in the Psalms. Join us next time for part two as we conclude our discussion of the struggle for sanctification in the Psalms. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.